The Confluence Story Gathering Podcast is a production of Confluence, a community-supported nonprofit with a mission to connect people to the history, living cultures, and ecology of the Columbia River Basin through Indigenous voices. Find out more at confluenceproject.org. How is it we might do education from a different lens? How might we decolonize our educational processes and assumptions so that we come to a place of becoming educated people who know their gifts and how to give them to the earth? Welcome to the Confluence Story Gathering Podcast, Indigenous Voices of the Columbia River. I'm Colin Fogarty, Executive Director of Confluence. You know, we all have a lens we see the world through. How can we change that lens to ensure our collective survival and restore our relationship with the earth, and by extension, each other? These are questions that Robin Wall Kimmerer asks in her New York Times bestselling book, Braiding Sweetgrass. Today on the Story Gathering Podcast, we'll hear Robin share some of her observations about the way indigenous wisdom and scientific knowledge can complement each other and lead observers to new ways of thinking about the natural world. Robin was the guest speaker for a Confluence Conversation Lecture in November 2020. I'm going to begin with our traditional protocol greeting in Potawatomi language and say to you, bonjour, Jayak. Hello, everybody. Respectful greetings. Shabadaske gish kokwe nadeshnakas. Syracuse, New York, And in our beautiful language, I've told you that my name is Light Shining Through Sky Woman. I'm a member of the Potawatomi Nation, Anishinaabe peoples of the Great Lakes. Um, and I am of the Bear Clan, also of the Eagles. I am living here in near Syracuse, New York. And it is also part of our Potawatomi protocol that we remember that our first responsibilities are for gratitude. And so if we think about the fact that this morning when we first put our feet on Chikokmikwe, that we had everything that we needed. We had air to breathe. We had that first drink of cool water. We had food to eat. We had the companionship of clouds and cedars and perhaps geese in the air where, where you are. We had the companionship of our friends and families. We had the privilege of our good work together. And as we give gratitude for all of the gifts that surround us, we also recognize that each of us is in some way tethered, really embedded in an economy and in institutions that relentlessly ask what more can we take from the earth. And as we think about education and the questions that we ask of the world and of ourselves, let's turn that question on its head and say, what does the earth ask of us? Isn't that the question we need in this moment of impending climate chaos on the edge of the sixth extinction? 
I also want to say um, very honestly that I am unlikely to tell you anything tonight that you don't already know. But I'm remembering the teachers of the teachings of our elders who say, but we're humans and we forget. And so our job is to remember, to remember. And really our theme tonight is as we remember, what do we have to unlearn? And what do we have to learn again? And I was given the charge to address that question through of education, learning and unlearning um, through a different lens than we might usually hear from. And part of our learning and unlearning is this notion of territorial acknowledgement. And that as we imagine starting our days in our classrooms with an acknowledgement of where we stand, not only where do we stand on the land, but where do we stand in relationship to history and doing right by land beyond territorial acknowledgement into the practices that enact it, particularly as we think about education. I also want to say that in this beautiful territory where I live, which is mostly sugar maple forests and orchards and farms, it is also the home of Superfund sites. It is a place where the indigenous worldview has been literally buried by the industrial worldview. The place where the peacemaker walked is covered by many meters of industrial sludge. So our work through looking at the world through a different lens is to combat that burying, not only of sacred land, but of sacred ways of knowing. And when we look at a place like Onondaga Lake, we can't help but recognize what a hard, hard place we are in right now. We are bearing witness to the outcomes of the way that we have been living here on Turtle Island for hundreds of years. And these words that, you know, the ecosystem's ability to sustain future generations is in question. Well, truly, there's no question that it's not sustainable. And let's just take a minute because again, as we're learning and unlearning through a different lens, what does that word sustainable even mean? And I'm reminded of a story shared with me by Carol Crow, an Algonquin biologist who talked about wanting to go to a sustainability meeting and going to her tribal council asking for um, a travel grant to do that. And her elders said, well, tell us what this sustainability thing is. And so she said, well, that's the way we've been living on our land, living well on our land for uh, millennia since time immemorial. But she also gave them these definitions that are really familiar to all of us um, in, in the audience tonight. I'm not going to read them to you because you know them very well. But all these definitions of, of sustainability have in common this notion of continued provision into the future, that our actions do not abridge the capacity of the earth to regenerate what it is that humans need. And Carol says that she told all of this to her elders and they were very quiet. And in fact, she thought they were going to turn down her request. But what they said was, yes, 
go to that meeting. Go to that meeting and we want you to carry a message to the people gathered there. And that message is that their notion of so-called sustainability sounds like they're just trying to find a way to keep on taking. It's always just taking. And when our feet hit the ground in the morning, we should be thinking what it is that we can give. This frame shift of sustainability from the continuity of taking to the imperative of giving is an important reframing of what it means to be a human being in this world. I remember sitting around a fire with um, a bunch of Potawatomi folks and the, some of the older guys were really giving me a hard time because after all, I had just earned my PhD in botany and they were kind of teasing me for spending my life in school as well. They might comment on that. And they said, so what does it mean to be educated? And uh, so I, I talked about, you know, learning to learn and, and, and creativity and wonder and problem solving, all those things that you might say as well. And they said, well, that's not quite how we would answer this question of what does it mean to be an educated person? What they said was an educated person is somebody who knows their gifts. What are my gifts and how shall I give them to the world? That's what it means to be an educated person. And to all of you teachers and um, uh, students as well out there, I think about the fact that have I ever written a syllabus that has this as its primary learning goal, to know your gift and how to give them in the world. This is part of our work of decolonizing education, to guide education by, a by this set of principles. And that's really what we're gonna focus on today. I want to tell you though, as because I especially know that lots of students are listening tonight, particularly Native students. So I want to tell you just a little bit about my own journey toward becoming an educated person, where this definition of education was rarely on the syllabus. It was fall time in September when I first went off to college. And, you know, I was born a botanist, I really was. And so there was no question when I went away to college that I would study botany. And when I, I knew I was going to be one of the only women in the forestry school and certainly the only native student there. And so I wanted to be really well prepared for what I knew lay ahead. And so when my teacher gave me my freshman interview and said, so Miss Wall, why do you want to study botany? I had my answer already because these plants that you see here, the goldenrod and the asters have always been so dear to me. And I said to him, I want to know why goldenrod and asters grow together and look so beautiful together. They could grow apart, but they don't. They grow together, intermingled and just make this gorgeous display. And I said, why is the world so beautiful? And he said, my dear, that is not a question of science. If you wanted to study beauty, you should have gone to art school. I'm like, oh, I was crushed. I thought it was a really good question. I thought it was a really good botany question. And, but apparently it wasn't. 
And so I said, well, I also want to know why the plants make medicines. I want to know why some plants bend for baskets and others don't. And he looked at me and said, well, that's not science either. But come on, you come and take my classes and we'll teach you what plants are really all about. That's why I look so happy. A few hours later in my freshman photo, I had no vocabulary for resistance to what I had just encountered. I had unknowingly walked between worldviews from an indigenous worldview of growing up on the land where the plants were my relatives, my teachers, my companions, and a question of why is the world so beautiful was the most important question to a place where the questions that were asked of plants is how does it work? And I felt really lost. In a way, my first day in higher education was not so unlike my grandfather's first day in education. Because he, as a little boy, was taken from his family on our reservation in Oklahoma, put on a train for the Carlisle Indian School, where he too was told that everything that he knew about the world didn't matter needed to be washed away and replaced with colonizer knowledge. And the echo of his day at school and my day of school propelled me forward in the world. And I'm remembering that what I encountered in going into science, into higher education in science, was something of an intellectual monoculture. I felt as if I was going knocking at the door of a big fortress on the hill. And uh, was hard to get in, maybe hard to get out, it was all regimented knowledge where I had to set aside the knowledge that I had of the land and of plants in order to enter there. What saved me, of course, were the plants, that I so loved botany and wanted to know everything there was about plants. And so I eagerly learned whatever they had to teach me inside that fortress, but all the while knowing that I was leaving something really precious behind that there was no room for in that realm of education. So I am so proud to tell you that right down the hall from that place where I was told that that's not science and that your way of thinking does not belong here, um, we now have the Center for Native Peoples and the Environment, whose mission is to bring together the great intellectual traditions of indigenous knowledge and the tools of, of Western science for our shared concerns of uh, care for Shkakmikwe, for Mother Earth. And I tell you this story because we are all in this moment thinking about this learning and unlearning. How is it we might do education from a different lens? How might we decolonize our educational processes and assumptions so that we come to a place of becoming educated people who know their gifts and how to give them to the Earth? Rather than the fortress, this intellectual monoculture, the work we try to do at the center is governed by a different metaphor, an organic metaphor of the garden, 
what we're really trying to do is to cultivate a mutualism between knowledge systems, not just one, but many ways of knowing, because we want to create a welcoming, inclusive educational environment to remember that we know so much more together than any of us do alone. And so the garden metaphor that, that we use is actually taken from the genius of Indigenous science, the Three Sisters polyculture. Whereas you probably know, corn, beans, and squash are not grown in a monoculture, but grown together in companionship, in relationship. The corn supports the beans, the beans fertilize the corn, and the squash shades the ground. They all work together. And when you plant those three species together, they're more productive, more nutritious, and better for the land than any of them grown apart. Could we learn from this plant symbiosis, mutualistic model about planting a knowledge garden? That's the approach we're taking so that all can be fed. Oftentimes, um, when we think about incorporation of traditional ecological knowledge or indigenous knowledge into STEM curricula, sometimes it's tucked in around the edges. Mostly it's not there at all, it's erased, but sometimes it's tucked in around the edges. But in our model, it is not tucked in, it is the center of the metaphor. It is the intellectual scaffolding for all that follows. Corn, as emblematic of indigenous knowledge or TEK, traditional ecological knowledge, is the elder knowledge. It's the ancient knowledge. It's the holistic knowledge, which includes mind, body, emotion, and spirit. So we plant it first and we honor it first in our knowledge garden that rises out of the earth. So the corn becomes our structure of TEK. As a scientist, I tend to think about the beans as akin to scientific knowledge, very powerful, curious, always wandering. They can enrich this symbiosis. But if beans are the only thing you plant in your garden, they'll take over right? Um, they crawl all over everything. They're not guided in any way. Productivity is lost and any other plants in the garden become subsumed by the presence of those beans. I think that can be a little bit like science too in creating a, a monoculture of knowledge. And so the metaphor that we like to use is to think about beans as Western science guided by the presence of the corn. And when that bean vine climbs the corn plant, as you know, if you've ever grown it like this, the plants, the beans flower in between the leaves of the corn. They're guided, their flowering is guided by these principles of, of, of indigenous knowledge that we think of in this knowledge garden as at least what a lot of us call the five R's of indigenous philosophy of respect, relationship, responsibility, reciprocity, and reverence. What would it look like if the tools of Western science, which are today deliberately unconstrained by human values, 
What if they were guided by these values? What would that look like as we turn the tools of Western science to caring for Mother Earth if this was the framework that we used? And then, of course, there's the squash. The squash that sits at the bottom of the corn and the beans shades the soil, keeps it moist, keeps it cool, keeps the weeds down. The squash are creating the climate, the microclimate where beans and, and corn can grow together. So in our knowledge metaphor, this is our educational space. How do we as educators, how do we as citizens create a climate where multiple ways of knowing are welcomed and, and embraced because of the way that they will enrich the solutions that we might find. So this knowledge garden acknowledges that the land is the source of knowledge. In our language, our word for knowledge and, and for teacher comes from this word kenamogwin, which actually invokes the earth as the holder of, of knowledge. And in that we plant as our scaffold, traditional ecological knowledge to guide scientific knowledge and create this ethical space of engagement where they can meet. We also, oops, we also acknowledge it. Uh, my fingers were too fast there. Um, we also acknowledge there's a fourth sister, the fourth sister, the one who tills the ground, the one who harvests the seed, who saves the seed, who plants the seed. That's us, right? The gardeners of this knowledge garden that we have responsibility for this symbiosis to nurture its development, to share its harvest. And how do we tend that garden? There's so much to say about that. I'll just a tiny little bit here. How do we tend this garden? Let me start by saying that I don't have a slide for how do we tend the Western science garden. That has been tended in, in educational institutions for hundreds of years. But as we bring forward this decolonizing notion of bringing indigenous knowledge to our classrooms, how do we tend that part of our garden? We promote language revitalization, our precious ideas and language of indigenous languages to breathe, to breathe life into them again and have them present in our, in our, in our classrooms. We foster respect for indigenous sovereignty. We act beyond territorial acknowledgement to truly respect and protect sovereignty. We protect cultural landscapes that um, provide for the flourishing of land and people. We think about education for community priorities, not knowledge for knowledge's sake, but knowledge for care's sake. And so what we're doing here really is in envisioning this symbiosis of scientific knowledge in partnership with traditional knowledge, so all are fed. Robin Wall Kimmerer is the author of Braiding Sweetgrass, a book we can't recommend enough. She's an enrolled member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation and lives in Syracuse, New York, where she's the founder and director of the Center for Native Peoples and the Environment. To find out more about Confluence and the five completed sites along the Columbia River, along with our educational programming, check out our website, confluenceproject.org. 
Remember, Confluence is a community-supported nonprofit, and we can only do this work because of the generous support from the friends of Confluence, and that's you. Join us today at confluenceproject.org. Thanks for listening to the Confluence Story Gathering podcast. For more episodes, visit our website or wherever you get your podcasts.